from Las Vegas, the entertainment capital of the world. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books. Today, my guest is Todd Nock. Todd is working on a Gwen Stacy series written by Christos Gage, and this will be her origin story before she met Peter Parker in Amazing Spider-Man number 31. And what kind of host would I be if I did not discuss with Todd one of the most successful comic books in Marvel's publishing history, the book in which he made a contribution, the Amazing Spider-Man comic book with the appearance of President Barack Obama. We are going to talk about Todd's origin story, how he got into comics. Does he still read and collect comic books? Does he have any original art that he cherishes? Plus, when I kick back with the creator, I ask Todd about what he does for a recreation, his favorite birthday, beverage of choice, action figure accessory, and what does he know now that he wish he knew when he was younger? What advice would he give to his younger self? This show is available everywhere, and if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave a review or just a star rating. It's very easy to do right from your iPhone. Just go to Apple Podcasts, look up Creator Talks, scroll down, and you'll see where you can leave a review or rating. It really helps the show and is greatly appreciated. And as I've said before, the show's available on other platforms, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and even on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen. But most importantly, please subscribe so you don't miss a single guest. And speaking of which, let's get started with my guest, Todd Nock, talking about Gwen Stacy and Spider-Man, here now on Creator Talks. Todd, welcome to Creator Talks. Hi, thanks, Christopher. Happy to be here. What's the best thing that's happened to you today? You know, um, that's... <laughs> I was not expecting that question. That's a curveball, huh? You know, it's, uh, it's pretty much been a traditional day. You know, just working on uh, the Gwen Stacy book, been working on inks. So I've uh, been having fun getting the final art down for some of these pages and got some pages scanned in, ready to send off to my editor. So that always feels good when I can have some pages in the can, ready to upload to my editor and knowing those pages are done, off to Rochelle to get colored. How far along are you right now? I'm blazing through issue two. Should be starting issue three next week. Oh, you're on top of it. Yeah. Well, just to share, the best thing that happened to me today was I got my stapleless stapler in the mail today. I've never heard of such a thing. Me neither. And I was watching the news one evening. Yes, I was watching the news. <laughs> I actually had broadcast news on. And uh, they had all these gift ideas and things for security and things like that, like a little stamper to obliterate your labels on your mail. So when you throw away your mail, people can't steal your identity. Well, they had this stapleless stapler that can staple like up to five pages. And it actually clips the paper and like, it folds it into itself like a little loop. It doesn't just bend the end. No staples to remove when I get done with my papers. I can just recycle them. This is great. After I obliterate them with the stamper. Yeah, everything. Of else. course. Of um, course. But I have to say, you really do. And if people haven't seen your Twitter, they should. Because you really do look like the Peter Parker from <laughs> Into the Spider-Verse. It's a uncanny resemblance that I've fully embraced. You've worn that at cons. Did you do that for Halloween? I did it for Halloween. Yep. Yep. At the Marvel offices <laughs> I was in, in Marvel for uh, in New York for a Halloween day. So I went in as Peter B. Parker and uh, that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I, I've done it uh, almost every con here for or this past year of 2019. When the Spider-Verse trailer came out, I hadn't seen it yet. And I get these DMs from all these fans saying, 
you look like Peter Parker in Spider-Verse. And I'm like, no way. Peter Parker does not have a long face. He's not a long faced <laughs> character. Mm -hmm. You know, Reed Richards, maybe, maybe Dr. Strange, but not Peter Parker. And I go on YouTube and I look up the trailer and it's like, oh my gosh, they gave Peter Parker a longer, more slender face. You know, he's older. He's got a paunch, a dad bod. It's like my age, my genetics and my uh, physique have all perfect stormed into the perfect cosplay here. So I, I fully embraced it. And the fans have had such a blast. I, every con just prior fans will message me asking, what day will you be Peter B. Parker? I want to come by and get a photo with you. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. That is a gift. It's easy for you to dress up. I mean, like, I'm like, who looks like me? No one's been cursed with that look. So I... <laughs> I don't have anybody I can like dress up for as Halloween. I just put on a mask or something. But uh, we started out talking about Gwen Stacy. You're going to start issue three next week. Now, this is an origin story. This is before she met Peter. This is before Amazing Spider-Man number 31. Yes, that's right. Editor Nick Lowe contacted me and said we got this idea to do this uh, Gwen Stacy miniseries, five-issue miniseries, to kind of let the readers know who, who was she before she met Peter Parker at Empire State University. And uh, so it's just pretty much high school Gwen with uh, Harry Osborn. It was established in Amazing Spider-Man that Harry and Gwen were high school chums at Standard High. So that's where our adventures will take place. Now, I was going to ask you a really stupid question, and then I read the solicit. <laughs> but I'll let you talk <laughs> about it. Will she run into other members of the cast of Spider-Man? Will she run into Spider-Man? Well, tell me about it. You're getting a chance to play with a lot of the characters in the sandbox. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to have Harry Osborn. We'll see Norman Osborn because Harry's still a teenager, so he still lives at home. So we'll see Norman Osborn. Uh, we'll see George Stacy, Gwen's dad. We'll get a real feel for that father-daughter um, relationship. And what's fun is that this story will, yes, incorporate characters from the Spider-Man family of characters. We'll see some of the villains, some uh, supporting cast type characters, but we'll also kind of get some glimpses into the greater Marvel Universe in the early days of the Marvel Universe. So um, we brainstormed all these different characters that we could slip in as cameos. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but I definitely threw in some of the characters from the early Marvel Universe that I knew I wanted to draw, and they were very well received by writer Christos Gage and editor Nick Lowe. So I think I'll get to draw some of my favorite early Marvel characters in this. But uh, I'm really excited to see how far we can kind of show the Marvel Universe happening around Gwen amidst the adventures she's having, just that alone. Well, this is really exciting because I've seen some of the art, beautiful art. And thank you. are you going to make it look kind of like the 60s? I mean, it's, you're not going to definitely say a, a certain time because it's kind of hard to do that, you know, with right. Marvel time. But you'll kind of like hint at that maybe? I discussed this when I was in uh, the Marvel offices on Halloween day. Uh, I went to lunch with my editor and assistant editors, uh, Nick Lowe, Kathleen Wisniewski, and uh, Lindsay Goick. And uh, we were just kind of discussed. We really brainstormed what would this series look like. And so, yeah, I mean, when the comics first came out, it was the 1960s. But Marvel time, it has to adjust to our actual time, real time moving forward. So the Marvel Universe is maybe 10 to 15 years old, roughly. It wouldn't be the 1960s, but it wouldn't be 2005, 2010. We're shooting for this kind of Paul Dini Batman sort of nebulous classic time it could be as far as the 1960s it could be the 80s it could be the mid 2000s uh so a lot of the aesthetics that i look towards for what i have to draw like keeping everything kind of nebulous but was still with some specifics especially with gwen's dress her wardrobe trying to find outfits that are timeless that are classic that people would recognize as something gwen would wear but isn't strictly dated to a hard 1968 or 1972. Same with uh, the technology. We're kind of having some retro tech, 
but you know some computers might be a little more flat screen so it's real this real kind of sliding scale of time that we're playing with but ultimately trying to make it look as classic or timeless as possible so that no matter when a person reads this story they get a feeling that it's the past but it doesn't feel like a very set specific decade or year now that makes a lot of sense because people came into spider-man and learning about gwen at different stages in their life throughout marvel's history of publishing and if it was dated like it was back in the 60s, you'd probably lose some people because they'd be like, well, what is that in that picture? What's that thing, a phonograph? You know, it, <laughs> it would be a little confusing. So, yeah, that's a wonderful way to do it. I saw on your Twitter you had done, I can't believe you did this, on a post-it note. You did this oh, great yeah. little picture of Gwen. You put your name on it, which was smart because I know people like, well, for example – Francesco Francavilla, I saw him post one time that somebody was selling t-shirts with his art on it. He had no endorsement of it whatsoever. Have you yourself or anybody you know had someone tried to use their artwork or your artwork for their own benefit? Yeah, yeah, that happens all the time. The piracy is, I mean, you post stuff online, it's somebody's going to steal it and, and slap it on a t-shirt. I see it happen all the time. A lot of the artists that I follow, fellow colleagues on Instagram will say, my artwork just got stolen, you know, it's on this t-shirt. I found my artwork on Redbubble and Redbubble has a nice system to like, if someone's using my copyrighted image, I can fill out a form and Redbubble, you know, I say, see, here's my original drawing. Here's the object that they're putting my artwork on, claiming it's their art. Redbubble will then take it down. But things are always going to get stolen. I try to post artwork at a resolution that is not super high res so that it's not as stealable. If you tried to reproduce it, it would just come out all kind of fuzzy or if you made it bigger. Digitized, than, yep. grainy, fuzzy. Exactly. That's what I try to shoot for nowadays. It's just, especially if it's something I think this could get stolen, then uh, I'll try to downsize the file but sometimes when i'm at a con and i finish a commission sketch i snap a photo on my iphone which takes you know beautiful high-res photos and then you know i post it onto my uh social media i try to put my watermark on there if i can but uh piracy is just how do you manage it i see that too with the uh, preview copies of comics they don't give you the high-res copy just mm -hmm. in case some nefarious person wants to go and post it on a site where they give away the whole comic <laughs> right it happens getting back to gwen this is her origin story now you I have to ask you, if you were to write and draw a 20-page origin story of your life, yeah. what would it cover? And I'll tell you what, that is a heck of an interview question for a job. Yeah. You should ask people that. Like, don't tell me about yourself. Say, condense it down to a comic book. <laughs> right. So, so what would be in that book about you? For origin story, I guess I would probably do a story that starts with kind of my first interest into superheroes and drawing, because that's a bulk of what my life is. So just kind of getting up to the point where I become a pro. So it'd be like that first 22, 23 years of my life, starting with, you know, as a little kid, Batman and Robin action figures were just always there. It was mom, dad, Batman and Robin. That was my first introduction to superheroes. And I was totally into it. And earliest memories were of drawing. And that kind of started the trajectory of my life. Got into superhero cartoons next with the shows like Super Friends, or the filmation Fantastic Four, or Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends was a huge cartoon for me because that introduced me to an even greater Marvel universe where I learned about the X-Men and Iron Man and characters like that. You know, I'd have to hit on my first comic book experiences, buying comics, reading comics, and then drawing my first homemade mini comic as a freshman in high school, and then realizing that's what I wanted to do for a career. And then you know, maybe the next two thirds of the comic is uh, the origin comic is the ups and downs of trying to learn how to do this growing up as a kid in the 1980s in a small East Texas town, trying to 
get information, trying to go to conventions, the critiques I got, then ultimately getting hired by Rob Liefeld when he discovers my college mini comics. So, you know, I'd probably work in my college years there too. So a lot of it would be the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of a, a young artist wanting to break into a big industry, especially there in the early 90s when Image Comics was starting. You know, comics were super crazy nuts. So feels like it was a bit bigger then than it is now. But now that I'm on the other side of the coin, it's hard for me to, to um, properly gauge uh, the size of the industry and, and my role in it because I'm just so focused on meet the deadline. So I guess that's my wibbly wobbly elevator pitch for my uh, origin comic. You know, to go back, I have to ask you, starting out back in the 80s and the 90s, do you think it was more difficult then because people were not so accessible outside of in-person and going to visit them or going to cons? And now people send emails, they use Twitter to get noticed. Or is it more difficult now because it's so easy to get in front of someone and there's so many people doing it? What do you think? I think it is both ways. I think there are aspects that make it easier and difficult at the same time, either back then or now, just for those things you said. I think ultimately the a consistency of what breaking in back then to also trying to break in now is meeting editors at conventions, that face-to-face -face interaction goes a long way because editors are going to work with these people. I know editors discover people online. They come across an Instagram or Tumblr account, like what you do, will you draw this? But I know editors go to conventions to find new talent. And so getting that face-to-face -face interaction can go a long way. That's kind of helped me get my first job because when I was in 19, I guess it was 1992, I scored my first job because for the year, year and a half prior, I kept seeing the same Marvel editor at the Dallas comic book conventions because she was from Texas. So she'd always come out for this convention. So I'd see her every four months, show her my portfolio every four months. And I finally wore her down to where she's like, okay, I'll buy a one-page gag off of you for our humor comic book. And I was just over the moon. I'm still in art school, got my first gig, and it's a Marvel gig. But it was just being able to see her and talk to her, and, and she could see the progression in my work. It helped. I mean, it took like a year and a half for that to come about. I mean, it felt like forever as a 19 year old, but you know, looking back on it, it's like, what's a year and a half? That's a drop in the bucket now that, you know, trying to break into comics is a difficult job to score because tons of young guys and gals want to be a professional comic book artist, want to work for Marvel and DC, work on the big name characters, but there are only so many books available to draw. Mm. Uh, I heard someone say, I don't know how accurate this is, a kid playing basketball has a better chance of getting a spot on, the, on an NBA team that is for a young artist who wants to draw comics to break in. I don't know how accurate that is, but it, it kind of gave me pause. It's like, well, really? I mean, I don't know how many you know professional basketball players are needed for each team. Aside from the five on the court, you know, they got to have a handful more. But it's like everything's competitive. Some things are a bit more competitive than others. And it's just there are going to be those trials, tribulations. And I think those that make it are the ones that, you know, are able to persevere, endure and still level up their skills bit by bit when they get those critiques and hopefully get to a point where an editor is willing to take a chance on them. What you did makes a lot of sense that you were persistent and you would see the same person year after year. So after a while, you're no longer like a stranger. Oh, they know you. And yeah. then they could see the progression of your work. They say, oh, okay, this guy, he can actually evolve and change and get better. He's not just mm -hmm. like stuck. He's actually trying. And what I've heard from other creators is that they have to like you as a person first 
before they'll give you a chance? Because are you going to be easy to work with? Yeah, that's a big component of it. I mean, because it is a working relationship. It's not just drawing pretty pictures. It's also being, is this a person who can take a critique when the editor says, you know what, I need you to change this panel or I don't like how you, you know, drew that facial expression. I'd rather you draw this. It's like, are they receptive to that or are they going to dig in their heels and throw a diva fit? Then you can go do your own thing and answer to no one. But you know, it's <laughs> getting your book noticed is harder. Yeah. That's the downside of that. I mean, it's great to be able to do whatever you want. All the marketing's on you. And you've got to fight for that space because now anybody can make a comic if they put their mind to it and go out there and fundraise, whatever. But you still have to fight for your space, though. With what we have nowadays, it allows for so many more opportunities but it allows all these opportunities for everyone else. So the, the competition is now grown in a different direction. But, you know, it's still worth trying. It's still worth giving it a shot. I do my creator-owned stuff on the side uh, whenever I have free time, like this little uh, comic strip I do on Instagram called Jacko Mantern. You know, I'll make a strip whenever I have the free time and throw it up there. You know, he's got a slowly building audience. People say, we want full comics of this character. I'd love to do that, but, you know, right now, Spider-Man's where it's at for me. I got to keep riding that train for as long as I can. Yeah, well, you got to eat. <laughs> you got to pay true. the bills. <laughs> Spider-Man definitely pays the bills far more than Jack O'Mantern would right now. Jack O'Mantern would probably have me um, getting a bit hungry PB and J. At, at the end of the day. Exactly. <laughs> if I, I'd be lucky if I could get that. It's one of those things where you're a creator, and I hear this from other creators, it's in them. They have to get the story out. You manage to balance it with your, your paying gig at Marvel, and then you do this passion on the side, and then maybe someday, you know? That mm -hmm. can be a thing in and of itself. You're building it up. You know, you can do a collection of it at some point. But when you meet fans at cons, they must be like, oh, yeah, you're the Spider-Man artist. What do they bring up to you the most? Spider-Man for sure. Because, I mean, Spider-Man is one of the biggest characters in the world. And I'm honored to be associated with that character in any any form or facet. So I'm definitely thankful for all the Spider-Man stories I've gotten to do. So lots of Spider-Man comics come across my table. And Young Justice is a comic book I'm really known for. A lot of people first discovered me on Young Justice at DC Comics. Almost all 55 issues of that run, that fan base is strong because a lot of people grew up reading that. You know, they started reading it as kids and now, you know, they're they're young adults. That fan base has been constant. So I really appreciate that. Those are probably the two properties I'm most known for in the comic book work I've done. Well, you couldn't be in a better space. You're hitting the Marvel fans. You're hitting the DC fans. So they all yeah. know who you are. And one of the books you did that you worked on that you contributed to was a huge seller, was the uh, Spider-Man with the Barack Obama cameo. That was like 583, I think it was. 583, correct. Yep. Backup story in that. Yeah. Does that bother you when someone calls it a backup story? I mean, it's still a story and it yeah. has to be called the backup. There's the main story and then there are these stories in the back. So they're the backup stories. I, I don't cringe or take offense to it at all because, I mean, it is what it is. I draw main stories. I draw runs on series. And I also draw, you know, short stories as well, whether they be backups or part of an anthology. Or I do fill in pages when a, when on a title when the deadline gets tight for a certain artist. You know, I'll come in and draw a handful of pages for an issue of Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. You know, it's like, so I'm just having fun getting to draw. So definitely do not, I mean, that, that Spider-Man Barack Obama story is a backup story. And it's probably the most read five pages I have done in my career today. That book sold like crazy. It was amazing. Multiple printings. <laughs> yep, yep. Five printings within six weeks. Man, that's got to be a record. Six weeks. I think so, yeah. Yeah, each week they had a new printing. It was pretty amazing. Now, speaking about your work, you used to work in a studio, but you're someone who likes to work on your own. You focus yes. better that way. Absolutely. Do you get cabin fever ever working from home? Um, no, not really. You know, when I've got a story to draw, I want to be in my studio by myself 
and just immerse myself in that world. My wife and I joke, she calls me an ambovert because I'm like half introverted, half extroverted. <laughs> and so the comic book work appeals to my introverted side. Just leave me alone. Let me go visit this world. I'll be back in time for dinner. But when it's convention time, it's like, this is a chance for me to get out or when I'm doing a live stream, it's a chance for me to kind of interact with fellow geeks and, and like-minded fans of comics. And it's a chance for me to kind of be personable and, and, and interact and chat and joke and laugh and have fun and cosplay or whatever. So it kind of helps balance because by the time I'm done with a convention, especially a long one like San Diego Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con, I don't want to talk to anyone for like a week, week and a half. Not even my wife. It's like, Don, I love you, but you know, we're at the end of San Diego Comic-Con. I don't want to talk to you for like four days. She goes, I know, you've got to recharge. Go to your fantasy world. And I don't, I'd like totally shut myself off from my wife for four days. But uh, uh, but she does understand that. I just slam from one side of the scale to the other. There's no middle ground for me. It's either all introverted or all extroverted. You mentioned your live feed. Now you have a YouTube live art stream. Tell me about that, where people can find it, how often you do it, and what kind of things you cover. Yeah, it's my YouTube channel. So if people search Todd Knock on YouTube, I should be the only hit that you find there. You can find my channel there. I just started making some art videos and uploading art videos. And this was before live streaming became a thing. And um, I've got like over 200 videos, probably over 250 videos on there, whether they be uploaded art videos or live streams. I try to live stream or post a video once a week. Uh, when the deadlines get really crazy or when I'm really focused on the deadlines, sometimes I don't have the time to do art live streams. So sometimes those take a back seat to the actual paying work because I want to make sure I do the best job I can for my editor, for the book, for the fans. So I haven't been able to live stream here since early December. Uh, hope to get back onto the YouTube here real soon and do another art thing. But uh, it's just through my creative process from sketching, penciling, inking, colors, markers, watercolors, and now I'm starting to uh, live stream digital art. So those are the things I talk about. And then I do a lot of Q&As where I, you know, answer people's questions. And uh, some of the common stuff is how do you break in the industry? What is it like working in the industry? What's the best way to table at a con? Things like that. Now, you still digitally do your layout and your pencils, but ink by hand. Yes, absolutely. I print out my pencils in the non-reproduction light blue lines onto the artboard and then ink directly over that, uh, mainly because I'm more adept at that than inking digitally, so I can be more timely with, with getting my work done. And it also allows me that one-of-a-kind original art that I can then offer up for sale on the collector market. So I didn't want to cut off that side source of revenue, original art. Uh, if I did it all digitally, then it's a file and, and there's no one collectible piece. That's why I still do my inks traditionally. I was concerned about that because with so many people doing their artwork digitally, it's wonderful. It looks great. Yes. There won't be as much original art in the future unless you see that artist and they do commissions like you do. I'm afraid it's going to be going away. You know, that's the nature of technology, I guess. Mm. Uh, I, I think we're still a ways away from there being like no original art available. But, you know, I think having that original art available is special because a person reads a story, they connect with that story, and then to be able to see and maybe acquire that page, that one-of-a-kind page, that one glimpse from a, a story that really meant a lot to them can be a special piece for a person to collect and display on their wall. It's like the one-of-a-kind page from a story that I read as a kid one of my favorite characters, the Spider-Man story, and I get to own a piece of it. And this is it. This is a page everyone has read, many people have read, and I'm fortunate to own it. So I think having original art available to the fans can be a special thing beyond just being a chance to help my monthly income. 
also just share the love. It is nice to have a piece of original art and to appreciate that because I've always wanted a piece of Gene Colan's art. Mm. And it can be pretty pricey. And I never yeah. had a chance to meet him. And I found a page that was very reasonable and it was from Night Force. It yeah. Was, I was like, well, it's Gene Colan. I, I want this. And I was going through the dollar bin at my comic shop this past weekend and I found the book that piece of art was in. I just smiled and said, I had yeah. that page, one of a kind. Yeah. Do you have any art one of a kind that you have purchased as a fan? Well, by the time I started collecting art, I was already in the industry. So anyone I'd get a page from would be a colleague or friend. So Barry Kitson and I did some art trading back in the early days of my career at DC Comics. So I have some Justice League year one Barry Kitson pages. Oh. Um, one of the pages which when Barry and I were kind of going through our stacks, it's like, Barry, can I have this page? It was uh, where Aquaman's trying to change the light bulb and they go, well, you need the light bulb screwdriver. And so Aquaman's going around trying to find this light bulb screwdriver. And I just thought that was such a funny scene. And then it's like, you're willing to let me trade for this page? Because this page, I thought I really got a kick out of it when I read it. And so I can own this one. He was so gracious and generous to let me trade for that one. Uh, I think he saw that I had gotten a good chuckle from it. I was so excited to see it that he was willing to let me trade for that one. That's definitely one of the pages that I own that's a, a prize piece for me because I really enjoyed that bit from the comic uh, when I read it back in the 90s. Now, do you still have a lot of comics that you read over the years? Did you keep those? Oh, yes. I have probably 30 plus long boxes and oh, it continues wow. to grow. I still have a full box at my comic book shop. Still reading at least like Spider-Man, the X-Men books, and Young Justice, the current Young Justice series. Um, still at least reading that in print form. I also read digitally now because, you know, once I got plugged in for the Marvel Universe app, it's like, oh, dang, I can go back and read all these comics from back in the day up to present. So that's bolstered my comic book reading as well. Might look into getting the DC Universe app as well. But yeah, still collecting comics. You know, I've got stacks of them all over the office, stacks in the bedroom. And then long boxes, just all in the garage and in the office as well. I could build a fort. I could build, <laughs> I could build a massive fort with them. I have a little man cave kind of. Uh, since I moved out here to Las Vegas, I don't have as much space. So I had to find a place to put all my books out of the way where they wouldn't get in the way and irritate my wife and my kids. I skinnied down the collection a bit, got them shipped down here. And I found a space under the steps, like a little closet. But I'm like lifting boxes to get to the ones in the bottom. And I'm like, this is really, <laughs> yeah. this is a heck of a workout. And I put this on Instagram. I found a solution, like these little sleeves for the boxes that didn't break the bank because some solutions are like really expensive. Yeah. And I'm like, ooh, I don't know. I don't have to spend that much money on just boxes. And so I bought them and they perfectly fit. Like you would thought I planned this up against the wall so there's no gap on either side they fit right in now i have like stacked four high and like eight across and i can just slide out a box now ah real tight little space in the closet but they yeah. all fit there because when i want to get to something at the bottom I'm like do i want to lift three boxes i don't know man i hear you i, I need a spotter now if i need to go into my <laughs> comic collection it's like because it's just so much so i'm got to check out this thing you found here see that might be a solution for me it's really cool. And I could use my own boxes. I didn't have to go out and buy a special box. And it just fits yeah. within size. So the weight keeps them all on top of each other nice and neat. So you could slide it out and find a book and slide it back in. Now, you have a really nice studio because I've seen it in the video. So tell me about your optimal working space as an artist. How do you like it set up? And how long did it take you to get it the way you wanted it? My format has been the same since I started working in the industry. When I got my first drafting table, 
a credenza off to the side, you know, a table off to the side where I can pile up my art, my reference, my tools, have a you know place to put a beverage or a snack. Having my TV, well, it used to be have the TV just off to the right or left and then a, a shelf that it's sitting on so I can stick my DVDs or even VHS tapes inside. But now that I stream everything I, I want to listen to while I, while I draw, I've got the iPad set right at the top of my uh, drafting table. And then uh, just a good old comfy office chair, and uh, I'm good to go. Jeez, I want to work alone, too. I could <laughs> have that kind of nice environment. This is what I'd love to do as a kid. You know, I come home from school, eat a bowl of Captain Crunch, put on uh, the G.I. Joe cartoon, and then draw. Now I get to do it for a living. So it's the same thing. I just get paid to do it. I'm living my best life. Well, let's talk more about you. I have a fun question to ask all my guests. I call it kicking back with the creator. And I wanted to ask you, do you have a better name for this thing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's got to be something better than that. That's all I can uh, come up with. <laughs> if I think of something, I'll shoot you an email. Please do. <laughs> and anybody else who's listening, if you got a better idea, because I used to call it fun questions, but they should all be fun. And kicking right. back, well, eh, kind of okay. But I got to find something better. But my first question, and I used to say, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? And everyone always says, I never get a chance to rest. Because <laughs> so, they're busy, right? They're working. Right. So for you, what do you like to do for recreation? Well, my wife and I, uh, we like to go for walks. So we live in Southern California. There's this park nearby that we like to walk. We can see the mountains. We can see the ocean. I'll almost see the ocean, I should say, to be fair to the Pacific. We can almost see it. Uh, but, you know, that's a chance for us to kind of get out, walk around, get some exercise. And I like to play card games and board games with my friends. So those are probably two things I like to do for recreation. Do you have game night with your friends? Yes. Uh, my old young justice inker, uh, Larry Stucker, he and I are still best pals, even though he left the comic book industry back 10, 12 years ago. He and I are still best pals. My wife and his wife are best friends. So my wife and I go to their house fairly frequently, and we often play uh, this card game. The best way to describe it is uh, group speed solitaire. It's called Nerds. <laughs> okay. And so everyone has their own deck of cards. You're playing it like solitaire, but when you're stacking up your ace to king in the center, anyone can play on those cards out there. So it becomes very fast, frenzied, crazy, crazy game. I'm surprised I haven't broken a finger trying to jam my card onto a certain stack to try to beat someone else to it. So that's probably a game we play the most. And then uh, we just got into Marvel Munchkin. So we've been playing that quite a bit. Marvel Munchkin? Yeah, it's a, this kind of one of those collectible card games. You start off as a shield agent. And you try to level up. The first person to get to level 10 wins. You encounter different Marvel villains that you have to defeat. You can bring in different Marvel heroes to be your allies. You can join different groups like the Avengers or the Guardians wow. or the Inhumans or the Spider Friends. Gain different powers and cards that are different powers and different equipment. And um, this can build up your battle points so that if you encounter a certain level villain, you can defeat them. And then you can team up with other people to take down someone else or to defeat a villain. So uh, it's pretty fun. Do you play any video games? I don't play a lot of video games. Probably Mario Kart would be the one I play most regularly. And it's been a while since I played Mario Kart. And usually we play that with my friends, Larry and Carrie Stucker at their house because they have all the gaming systems with their three sons. So, but here at home, Don and I still have an Xbox 360. That's how far behind we are. <laughs> We're still Xbox 360 people. And on that one, we played Just Dance and the Lego games. I have the Lego Marvel game, the first one. But it's been a while since I've dusted that thing off to play. Next question. What was your favorite birthday? I don't know if I have one specific favorite birthday that I can recall. For about 13 years, I had a themed birthday I would do every year. I'm a huge, huge, huge Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan. Mm -hmm. Been a fan since 1992. 
And I love cheesy movies. The cheesier, the better. From about the year 2002 to 2015, I would invite my friends over. We'd have some pizza, buffalo wings, stuff like that. And I would put on a cheesy movie or two, and we would just, you know, riff <laughs> on that movie and, uh, and did that for a number of years. And then just kind of fell by the wayside. I think people got sick of watching my favorite crappy movies, so I... I um, Stop doing that party, but uh, but that was definitely um, something that was kind of a regular thing for a while. The next question is a hypothetical situation. You're stuck on that deserted island. You have one book to read for pleasure. What would that book be? Maybe like the collected Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay. Because I thought Marv Wolfman wrote a great story. George Perez's artwork is beautiful, and there's just so much to see. I could just sit there and play Where's Waldo as well as read the story, just, you know, finding all the different heroes and villains throughout that book, because I think he drew, like, everybody that ever existed in the DC universe up to that point. So I think that would definitely keep me entertained for quite some time. Yeah, George is a great artist, and he Absolutely. did so well with those books where there were tons of heroes. I used to read his Avengers, too, and that was a great oh, yeah. book. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. If someone were to make an action figure of you, Marvel DC, what would be your accessory. Well, I wouldn't want to say like a pencil or a pen because I'm an artist. That would be kind of, I think, a boring accessory. I got to get an accessory that, you know, gets kids yeah. pick up my action figure off the shelf because I've got a super cool accessory. So I'd probably say some sort of high-tech backpack, like a Ghostbuster proton pack uh -huh. meets dial tone from G.I. Joe, his communication backpack <laughs> that went up over his head with a little walkie-talkie thing that pulled down, that kind of cable hose that connects to like a giant blaster, like a cable-sized blaster that has maybe like a buzzsaw on it, some other sort of Swiss Army sort of uh, gadgets that pull out of it as well. So it's not just a blaster alone, like a hook on it. That would be it, the high-tech blaster backpack combo. Because I used to make backpacks for my action figures as a kid. I'd, I'd take matchboxes and rubber bands and I'd jury-rig this little backpack to put on my stormtroopers to make them look like sand troopers. And uh, so I always like the idea of putting backpacks on my action figures so i think that's what i want for mine it, 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 it'd be all in my origin comic when when that comes okay. out you know we'll, we'll touch on that in the early days of todd Knox. now when you're not working hard what is your beverage of choice ah my beverage of choice well when i'm not working hard let's see because when i'm working hard i'm drinking water and green tea green mm. tea is my uh caffeination for the day but if i'm gonna have a beverage for fun i'd probably say uh dr pepper Okay. Or a cream soda. I haven't had one of those in a long time. Yeah, I don't have them very often, but when I do, it is quite the treat. What still gets you excited every day? Is it cream soda? What What is the thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not every day. Not okay. Cream soda. Not every day. I can't afford that. That, that had me ballooning up too quick. Um, something that gets me excited, I mean, every day is drawing. I mean, it's my lifelong passion. I look forward to drawing. I wake up and I'm in the shower and I'm thinking about what I'm going to draw that day. Uh, so that has me excited. You know, when one of my favorite shows is going to start up, you know, whether it be Survivor or um, a new season of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or the Summer Olympics, you know, that is something that can excite me. It's like, oh, something to tune into, you know, something to pop some popcorn and kick back and, and see the latest adventures of whatever this character or show is can be a, an excitement as well. New comic book day is a big exciting day for me. It's like Christmas every week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Now, what keeps you up at night? Now, I don't mean too much green tea, too much caffeine. I mean, like anything that's on your mind, the kind of things that might make you stay up. Like, I might be thinking about work. I might be thinking about a movie I saw, and it's just like mm -hmm. ruminating through my head. I mean, God, the first time I saw Walking Dead, whew, I had a hard time <laughs> sleeping that night. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what kind of things keep you up? If I've just gotten a new script, 
and I've read over the script, I will start thinking about how am I going to put this puzzle together? So that morning I can just like bust right into the art. So oftentimes I'll think about that, this current Gwen series, I'll think about what Christos has written, kind of start playing that movie in my mind as I'm lying in bed. I do a lot of creative stuff when I'm trying to go to sleep, apparently. It's probably not the best place to do that because I'll fall asleep and wake up and forget <laughs> what I just come up with. I, I do that too often. Or I'll grab my phone and I have a, in the notes app, I'll start, you know, typing out this whole idea and I'll sit there for half an hour writing a script when I really should be letting my mind power down. But then again, you know, this is what's keeping me up at night. You know, just the creative juice is still flowing. And then just, you know, normal stressors is like, oh, I got to pay this bill or oh, taxes are due. I got to got to make sure I write those checks for taxes or uh, get these receipts added up. So a lot of those types of things, uh, stressors can kind of freak me out. And then it's like, if I want to fall asleep, I got to write myself a note. Don't forget to do this. I'll send myself an email so that when I go to check my emails in the first thing in the morning, there's an email from my half sleepy self saying, don't forget to pay your federal income tax. Email this editor, the the JPEG of the sketches for approval. Those are some of the things that can, uh, can keep me up at night. Yeah, that's what I do is I use the notes on my phone to write ideas that come into my head, like for this interview. And then uh, if I want to remember something, I use the reminder app. So that way it kind of buzzes like it's time to do this. And uh, it'll stay on my phone until I look at it. But speaking of getting a new script and reading things, what book did you read that changed the way you think? That's a great question. I don't know if I can think of something that changed the way I think. That's a really interesting twist to it. I mean, a lot of the ways that I've changed the ways I've thought, I mean, is through interpersonal interactions and relationship and talking with people. And so that's changed the way I think. But as far as reading something, I'm not quite sure I could think of something. I think the closest I could get, I don't know if it really changed the way I think on a regular basis. It was unexpected to me. And I think that was a bit of a change for me. It was an issue of Spider-Man. It was Amazing Spider-Man issue 248, The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. Oh, yes. Was a very powerful story for me because the end just gutted me. I had never had such an emotional experience with a comic book before. I felt so much emotion for the kid, for Peter Parker, uh, the whole situation. And and it was such a beautiful, powerful story that it, it really impacted me as a teenager when most of the comics I read... I just wanted to see a slugfest, you know? I want to see the X-Men fighting Juggernaut. I want to see Captain America fighting Red Skull. And I want to see Spider-Man fighting Green Goblin. And here I'm reading a story about Spider-Man going to talk to this kid. And that just really just blew me away. And it's probably one of my all-time favorite Spider-Man stories. I've heard that one come up before. It really impacted them. Highly recommend it. What was a turning point in your life? We have many crossroads in our life. We pick one direction or another, but was there a certain moment where that was a big turning point for you? The first one that can come to mind is I was 14 years old, freshman in high school, 1985. And a buddy of mine, in French class, you know, that I hung out with that knew that I was a big comic book fan. I love to draw. And, you know, he questioned me on that. He goes, you're always drawing and you're always reading comics. Have you ever tried to make your own comic? And that had never occurred to me. And so that I could like try to do that. So that day when I got home from school, took some printer paper, folded it in half, wrote and drew about an eight page comic book of my creator own character that night. And it was so much fun creating. The story was terrible. The art was terrible, but it was so much fun creating. It's like, I made this character come to life on this page. I drew these panels. I wrote in this dialogue. I made this. This is so much fun. This is it. This is what I want to do. I want to be a comic book artist. I don't want to do anything else now. Everything I thought I wanted to do is out the window. I'm going to be a comic book artist. And that was like a very 
hard turning point for me, whereas like I made a hard 90 degree turn there definitely was a big trajectory changer for me. And, uh, set me on the path to where I wanted to be today. Well, I think you made the right choice. I'm glad you made the choice. I'm sure a lot of people are glad you made the choice. So, <laughs> uh, Thank you. Me too. Me too. And uh, my final question is, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were younger? Wow. Um, For me, I know it's hard to pick just one. Yeah, gosh, it can be so much. I mean, especially when we start to get up there in years, it's like so much, though, how I perceive life now is so different than I perceived it as a kid. Probably perfectionism, letting go of perfectionism, stop trying to be perfect. When I realized I don't have to be perfect and just relax and have fun, the thing I was frustrated about it not being perfect turned out better than what I thought it would be. So letting young Todd know, stop trying to be so perfect, you're frustrating yourself, you're causing yourself far too much anxiety, and it's contributing to depression. You don't have to be perfect, you're okay as you are. You're okay if you make a mistake, that's okay too. You're okay. You don't have to be perfect. Just relax, have fun, enjoy the process. Things will evolve over time as long as you keep putting one foot in front of the other. That's the only way to go because you're not going to be able to be perfect. It's not going to happen. You don't have to carry that idea with you because it's unrealistic and unreasonable. It's not about being perfect. It's about grace, having grace on yourself, relax, do the best you can, don't half-ass it. Do the best you can, mm -hmm. and things will be okay. You're going to learn. You're going to grow. You're going to evolve bit by bit. Let yourself do that. Let yourself have the freedom to grow. Stop trying to be perfect, especially at age 9, 12, 13, 17. Your brain's not even fully formed yet. So. That's right. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> Mine's not fully formed yet. <laughs> Ask anybody. <laughs> no, that is a good advice. You know, Just give 100%. No more, no less. That's the best you can do. And you got to say, that's it. I studied the martial arts for a while. And you know when you're giving 100%. You'll know if you're cheating yourself. And then when you're done, that's it. You've trained. You're done for the day. And then yeah. come back tomorrow and do it again. That's just be consistent. You'll grow over time. You can't rush it. There's no right. shortcut. Absolutely. But Todd, it has been a pleasure. And I know you have a lot of work to do. So I'll let you get back to it. And that's Gwen Stacy, five-part series. The first issue is coming out February 12th. You can get it as a gift for Valentine's Day. Genius. <laughs> get it for someone you love. <laughs> I got to start marketing it like that on my social media. That's my gift. Go ahead. Use it. You can use oh, it. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, appreciate I won't that. watermark it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on Creative Talks. Oh, thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. All right, folks. The pipeline is full again, so I can tell you who's coming up on the show in the future. Coming up will be returning guest Matt Mayer Lowry. He worked on Life Formed. Volume 1. He's going to discuss Volume 2, which came out back in September, what he has planned for the future of the book, and a couple of projects that he's been working on with other creators that hopefully he'll have printed up in time for Emerald City Comic Con, which is March 12th through 15th. And when you listen to our interview, you'll find out if those books will be available at Emerald City Comic Con, and you'll learn more about them during the interview. Also coming up in the weeks ahead, J.M. DeMatteis. He is working on a one-shot comic book through IDW, Star Trek Hell's Mirror. One of the Mirror Universe comic books coming out through IDW that I love so much with art by Matthew Dow Smith. Huh? How about that? And I have a special guest coming up for episode number 200. 
That's right, the 200th episode of Creator Talks. This guest has a lot of experience, rub elbows with, and worked with many other comic creators that you're familiar with. So stay tuned for that announcement coming up. And I have others in the pipeline I'll be interviewing that I will announce once those are in the can. There's much more coming in 2020, so I'm very excited to bring these interviews to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, I ask please rate and review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance and spread the word about the podcast. Let's grow that audience, folks, because word of mouth is one of the most important ways, and I can't do it without you. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Mm